It's only natural when you're touring someplace new to compare it to what you're accustomed to back home. Hi, I'm Rick Steves, and we're flipping that dynamic around a bit in the hour ahead on today's Travel with Rick Steves. Three native-born Europeans who make their living leading Americans around their home turf each year are joining us at our home base, and we'll ask them to share their own impressions of what stands out about America when they come to visit us here. When you say, okay, this is the land of possibility, but that means sometimes family needs to be on the side, maybe? Our guests coming up are Tina Hiti from Slovenia, Francesca Caruso from Rome, and Barry Maloney from Ireland, where Celtic roots run deep, all the way under the Atlantic. I find out that Americans are very well connected to Europe through their history, through their family tree, and that's what makes us, you know, feel at home together. We're getting a new angle on our own backyard on today's Travel with Rick Steves. Thanks for joining us. On today's Travel with Rick Steves, we thought we'd turn things around a bit and ask some of our tour guide friends from Europe to share their impressions of America and what kinds of things stand out when they come to visit us here in our country. Later in the hour, we'll check in with listeners for memorable ways to connect with the locals to make our European experiences more vivid. We're at 877-333-7425, and our email address is radio at ricksteves.com. Joining us right now are Tina Hiti from Slovenia, Francesca Caruso, who lives in Rome, and Barry Maloney, who hails from Kinsale in Ireland's County Cork. Thanks for being here. Thanks, Rick. Thank you. Thank you for having us. I'm assuming that there's some, uh, you know, cohesiveness about Europe. You're from Ireland, Slovenia, Italy... What is there is, about you is, that's European as opposed just to Irish, where you would have a greater similarity with Tina or Francesca it's than about, with me? Yeah, it's a good question, Rick. It's about your outlook. Irish people have, at the moment, a very much a European outlook. And what would that be? Uh, it, you'd see it even in the newspapers, the media. The way You know, I've seen that when I pick up the newspaper over here, USA Today. Mm-hmm. You know, it's all about Romney and Obama and debates and American football, you know. Whereas you pick up the newspaper in Dublin... And they're talking about the Swiss franc. You know, it's a European perspective. USA Today, that says a lot, doesn't it, Francesca? Well, I think in, in, in my case, I think what we share is having maybe an older past, so that how that forms us as people, as a culture. And the newness of the United States is always something that I think strikes all of us or certain traits of a common personality. I think what we decide that we all have in common is the fact that we're not very practical and we tend to talk around things for hours and we always struck by how here everything is always straight to the point and very practical. Straight to the point mm-hmm. and practical, as mm-hmm. opposed to Italy. Yes. So how would how would Italy be less to the point than America? Well, how slow we are in making decisions, how we debate things a lot longer, and how we are never able to be cohesive as a nation. We've always admired the way that the Americans know how to be a nation, much more than we are Italians. So always these conflicts, always very fragmented in Italy oh, okay. versus, I mean, at least So Italy is, is a little more chaotic politically. Well, yes, I think we're sort of known for that. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's interesting. It's an Tina? Yeah, and I think also culturally just things like, you know, our kind of feeling towards food, you know, how we eat and how we drink. And that's also, I think, European much more than it is American. We have this attitude towards food. We eat very differently. We consider it's impolite when you toast with somebody and you don't look into their eyes. And it's in every single European country is the same. It's considered rude if you have hands underneath your table. They should be on the table and visible. And then also, we take time to eat. We always sit down and eat. This is always a gathering, not just family and friends, but also, you know, you have to sit down and eat. You don't hurry here and there. We sit down not just for food, we sit down for coffee. And that's literally everywhere. The cups, for example, coffee to go, in my country, in Slovenia, they came maybe a year or two ago. And never before, people would consider you very weird if you would be walking down the street with a cup of coffee in your hands. They would say, oh, this is probably a person who's not from here, a tourist, probably from somewhere else, Maybe but not with a Europe. little bit of a... Well, now that's yeah. interesting because if you walk down my town here, mm-hmm. half the people have coffee in their hands. They're walking mm-hmm. with their coffee. Yeah. And that was not even a concept until one year ago in Slovenia. Yeah. Barry, any <laughs> thoughts on that from Ireland? 
Yeah, I guess it's the pace of life, you know. The pace of life can be slightly mm-hmm. different. I find but, but we make more money, you see. I well, mean, if we go faster, we make more money, and a lot yeah. of Americans would put down all you Europeans because yeah. you're just sitting around talking to each other and having yeah. good food. That's a, it's a great point, Rick, because uh, I find here success is encouraged. Right. Not so much in, in Europe. There can be a reverse tint in it. And in Ireland, we're famous for bringing somebody back down to earth with a thud, yeah. a bang, you know. Get, get your feet back on the ground. Yeah, a good story about that is uh, a guy from my home city, he made it big in the TV right. industry in Ireland, you know? Right. He had his own game show, TV game show. And he came back to Cork and uh, a guy saluted him walking down the street and he said, hey, uh, myself, my wife, we watch your show all the time. And you'll have to listen carefully to the next part he said, because he said, I said I'd say it to you if I saw you and I'm after seeing you, so I'll say it to you, your show is no good. So he kind of led him up for the sucker punch, you know? He kind of built him up first, you know, and then brought ah, him right down to earth with a bang. Isn't that you know? interesting? Francesca from Italy. I was thinking Italy. of what you were saying about the fact that here success is encouraged. I was thinking how in Italy it's impolite when you first meet somebody to ask them what they do for a living. People, yeah. Many people don't Same want to be, be yeah. identified with what they do. That's not the first thing that they want to share about themselves. They'd rather share their uh, personal stories, their family, even their medical and astrological uh, right. <laughs> history before they share what they do. And I think that says a lot. Whereas in America, what you do sort of defines your self-worth almost. Yes. yes. Yeah. If I can say this on, on a very positive note, I was thinking about language and the use of words. I was thinking that in Italian, we never use the word dream without irony or sarcasm. You would never tell somebody to follow their dreams. And then Really? See, so I think that's a huge difference. Because in America, we celebrate following your dream. Mm-hmm. So why so, would you not celebrate that in Italy? Because we think that those dreams will not come true. And I was thinking that there's a word that we use almost every other sentence in an Italian word. It is magari, but you don't even have it in a, an equivalent for it. It's, oh, if only. If and only. we throw it in every, there's a sense of almost a regret for something that you know will not happen. So, so if, if only the impossible was true, so where we would say, follow your dream. Anybody can be president. You know, if you can imagine it, you can do it. When I talk yeah. to my American friends of, of dreams or ideas that they have, the first thing they always tell me is, Francesca, do it. And said, Go when, for it, when I say. think as an Italian, I think, oh, but no, there are so many difficulties. No, I'll never be able to. So a sense of possibility, I think, is one of the most extraordinary yeah. things that, as Europeans, we know to us about the American culture. Yeah, is that a good thing? I think it's an yeah. excellent thing, especially so, for young people. Yeah. yeah. We have the same in Slovenia, for example. We always feel that U.S. is the land of possibilities. And if you work hard, you are more probable to succeed in U.S., in our country, if you are a hard worker, if you're a good worker, usually if you don't have the connections, you will never climb up the ladder. So you're almost discouraged yeah. or disillusioned. Yeah. Like, don't, why do that? Don't rock the boat. Just yeah. be a team player in Europe. And that's why most of us sit down and drink coffee. <laughs> <laughs> ah, well. well and spend time with family, which is very important in Europe. Maybe it's a practical yeah. uh, decision that mm-hmm. you're going to get more out of that than struggling yeah. futilely for some sort of True. following your dream. Find fulfillment where you can find it. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves, and we're talking with three friends from Europe about European impressions of America. Francesca Caruso comes to us from Italy, Tina Hiti from Slovenia, and Barry Maloney from Ireland. And Tina, you were talking about how, you know, if you were to say something what is uniquely European about all three of you, Italy, Slovenia, and Ireland, it would be this sacred ritual, this community, this conviviality you have in eating and mm-hmm. drinking, mm-hmm. whereas we are the champions of coffee on the go. Uh, fast food, uh, you know, eat and run. We just say, it's a phrase, eat and run. And we say it without even thinking about it. It's a way of life here. Okay, so that's one way Europeans uh, have a a sort of a unity, even though there's a lot of diversity Mm -hmm. in Europe. What are other ways that you would characterize yourself as Europeans, Mm -hmm. even though you're from very disparate countries, more disparate, I would say, than anything in the United States, if you compared Ireland and and Italy? I think a big unifying thing is our closeness to history and to prehistory. Because, like, here in Seattle, people have been here over 10,000 years in Seattle. Right. Yet you can't just reach out and touch the standing stone, the ancient ruin, right. the, the ruined church, the ruined castle. 
It's not within touching distance. There's a lack no. of enthusiasm for it, uh, to be frank, about in the United States. I, I've looked all my life across the Puget Sound to see the Olympic Mountains, mm-hmm. and I really cannot name a single mountain. Mm-hmm. Where if I was in Slovenia, you'd oh. have a story behind every peak, and <laughs> yeah. everybody Almost. would know it. You know, yeah. uh, our city is named after Chief Seattle. Well, his, his burial spot is just a one-hour drive away, and I don't know anybody of my friends who's ever been there. Wow. It's not that core to us, whereas in Rome or in, in Ireland, you would have stories and myths yeah. and, and legend and, and roots into your past. And we're also the ones who are always searching for those, you know. Wherever we travel, we like those stories. Yeah. Because this is what kind of defines us. You know, we are the people who come with many stories and we want new stories. Okay, so up. you've all been in the United States. Yeah. And if you were to get on the phone and talk to your friends back home, what has been striking to you in your experience? What would you share? The most striking thing for me is a sense of space, a sense of the vastness, not only the vastness, but as an Italian, as a Roman, I have never been in a landscape in which I haven't been able to perceive the presence of man. So for me, it was completely new to be in these wide expanses where I could actually imagine the world before the presence of man. And I have often had a very spiritual experience in that type of landscape, which I think you can absolutely uh, compare to the experience of art and history in Europe. I think that you are... Uh, sequoias, your redwoods, are like the Sistine Chapel. It's a natural equivalent of great art. So I am very drawn to that, and I know that a lot of Europeans have been flocking to uh, America to see your national parks, which are your cathedrals. So I go to Europe to see the Sistine Chapel. You come here to see the giant sequoias. Yes. Great art, natural art. Tina? Many great museums you have, even though you don't have a very you know, long history, so to say, compared to Europe. But your museums are incredible. And what I like, because I come from a very small country with only 2 million people, we don't have big cities. So whenever I come here, I'm like, oh, my God. You know, you could fit the whole country into this city. Because all of Slovenia yeah. into Los yeah. Angeles. We can just move into one avenue and nobody would even notice. And there's so many things going on, like musicals and theater events, many, many things, which in Slovenia sometimes we just dream about. Maybe we have one Broadway musical a year, and everybody wants to go there. Here, it's, it's night, rare if you have night. one, only one at night. Right. It's usually many options, many possibilities. That's, that's what's striking for me. We'll take your calls in a moment at 877-333-7425 as we turn the tables to explore European impressions of life here in America with our tour guide friends Tina from Lake Bled in Slovenia, Francesca from Rome in Italy, and Barry from County Cork in Ireland. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking about European impressions of America. We're joined by Francesca Caruso from Rome, Tina Hiti from Slovenia, and Barry Maloney from Ireland. Don emails us from Helen, Georgia. Don writes, 
uh, do the old stereotypes of the ugly American still persist today? So you guys, uh, when you come over here to visit America, are there any traits in our culture that you would classify as what traditionally has been called ugly American? What annoys you about us? You can be impolite. Um, yeah. <laughs> the only thing I could pick up in that, Rick, is the, the car dependence. Car dependence. That I see here. You know, like, I got that amazing feeling when I'm driving from Seattle Airport. You're on that seven-lane freeway, yeah. and you see the skyline in the distance. It's breathtaking. But the downside of that is the fact that everything seems to depend on the car here. Well, that's another thing that's different mm-hmm. between America and Europe. We have been, our infrastructure has been built essentially in mm-hmm. the last hundred years, uh-huh. and it's been built for the car. Whereas in Europe, your mm-hmm. infrastructure was built uh, with medieval walls around towns and, and little lanes, yeah. and uh, it's designed for public transit, I think. And you've yeah. got the population density. And even like this this year I got married, and I was kind of researching American weddings, and I spotted down in Vegas the, the first drive through wedding. Well, you don't have drive through weddings no, in Ireland? No, we don't, we don't no. have those, no. I was struck by drive through bank. That's also something. drive through bank? drive through bank. It's, yeah, drive through yeah. bank. It's, we got drive through anything you can imagine. I, I was just sitting and looking at that sign, and I was like, oh, my God, this is incredible. drive through yeah. bank. But in the Netherlands, yeah. they have drive through brothels. <laughs> oh, we don't have those. <laughs> Not legal yeah. ones. Not legal uh, ones. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. Our phone number is 877-333-RICK. And Mark is on the line in Louisville, Kentucky. Mark, thanks for your call. Hi, Mr. Steves. The question I had, sir, was uh, most of my European friends are actually uh, Germans who I know through work. I used to work for a uh, multinational company. And when they come to visit us here in America, I'm usually the one that babysits them. And uh, their number one thing that they always want to do when they arrive here in America is they always want to go with a shooting range. Um, the German word for assault rifle is Sturmgewehr. They uh, they know that very well. Assault um, rifle. I was just wondering. Yeah, I was just wondering if that's something that is a is pretty universal across Europe, or if it's just Germans who uh, are interested in uh, doing those sorts of things when they come to America. Would that be the same in Italians? Or <laughs> no. I, <don't laughs> I think that's that. uniquely German. No. And maybe more of a man that. thing. A man thing. Yeah. What about that, the guns in America? Is that intriguing to Europeans? Oh, coming from Ireland, I find that very intriguing because we have an unarmed police force. And just yeah. coming into the airport here, you, you see the, you know, Homeland Security, they are armed, and it's, it, it's a fact of life. Uh, my impression of Americans is that they're more grounded than Irish people. We tend to be a bit more quirky, a bit more out there. Loose gun laws wouldn't work in Ireland. Mm-hmm. Take it from me. It just wouldn't work. <laughs> so... I think I think the gun laws here are, it, it's amazing to me that there's not more problems in bars late at night. When you think of how many guns we have in our country compared to Ireland. Yeah, it's, it's, it, every time I see it, I, it does, I suppose, um, surprise me. Yeah, the same here. It surprises me. Many of the friends I have here, they all own a gun. And if you would just kind of know them like a person, you would never say, you know, that's a person who owns a gun. And it's just kind of weird to accept that because we're just not grown up with that. Yeah, we, I mean, we have a, a lot of, of rifles around the city. I mean, we've had that since the terrorism from the 1970s. In Rome. Yes, absolutely. So you're used to seeing police with rifles yes. because of terrorism in mm, Rome. But as far as owning a gun in your house is something I still have to <laughs> come to terms with. <laughs> and it wouldn't be something that I would like to see when I come here necessarily. So, Mark, do your German friends have a good time at the shooting range? <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah, they definitely love it. As a matter of fact, uh, the shooting range that I go to here locally in Kentucky, it's a very famous one. And it's not unusual to have Europeans who are traveling to America, and they actually stop at this place for the experience of actually shooting here in America. So, yeah, in addition to the ones that I take there personally who are friends of mine, there's other ones that I encounter there. Uh, just the other day I was there with a uh, French guy doing a little bit of shooting. So Gun tourism. I hadn't really thought about that. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's true, man. They, you, you do see them out there. They're not real common, but they're around. Wow. You know, interestingly, the, uh, one of the guests commented about, uh, you know, you see people with, with weapons in Europe on the streets of Rome. To be honest with you, when I go in, you know, Italy or England, I see them with their, their little submachine guns running around. That kind of disconcerns me. I'm not really afraid of what the Americans carry around, though. <laughs> well, you just see a lot of machine guns on the streets of Rome, yeah. I guess Romans yeah. get, get used to that reality. Yeah. Mark, thanks for your uh, contribution, and uh, keep an eye on your German friends. <laughs> All right. Thank you, Mr. Steve. <laughs> okay, thank bye you, now. Thank you, everybody.
It's, it's an interesting topic because I, I can see you guys just kind of giggling almost nervously about the thought of, of people getting off and going to a gun range, but that's a, a big uh, pastime here in the United States. Jacinda in Alexandria, Virginia, writes an email. She says, I'm a teacher, and I'm always amazed at how well the children in Europe behave in public. I'd like to know what Europeans think about the way American children behave. That's an interesting comment. And, and James is on the phone in Virginia Beach. Uh, James, thanks for your call. Do you have a similar concern about American kids? Yes, I do. When, when I've been in Europe and I've seen groups of European kids on a field trip or whatever, or even teenagers or even young adults, 19 to 22, they always appear to you know, act nicely and normally and respectfully. I have seen a couple of... Uh, unfortunately, groups of American kids in Europe that tend to be more insular and more spoiled and as opposed to the European kids who are polite and, you know, much nicer to us as we travel. Well, that's an interesting topic. I'd love to get Barry and Tina and Francesca's take on that. Just on, mm-hmm. I, th- I think it, we have to be careful that we Americans don't just think our kids are noisy and your kids are angels, you know, uh, because <laughs> oh, I, they aren't. Uh, they're not. Yeah. No, no. But when you come to the United States, are you struck by anything in the way that we might parent or take care of our kids compared I, to that European stuff? I think what's what's striked me because I I just had kids and some of my friends from here had kids the same time as me. They had to go back to work after three months. And I know that I didn't go back to work for one year. And it was a maternity leave that was totally paid. And I think that was one thing that gave me so much when I spent that one year with the kid. You got one year paid maternity leave in Slovenia? Yes. Not the richest country in Europe? No. (laughs) No. Wow. Is that that routine or is that unusual? Um, I think it's European. It's like more than three months for sure because really I think you cannot adapt because having a baby it's a huge thing and you cannot just go back to work and this is when you say okay this is the land of possibility but that means sometimes family needs to be on the side maybe because of that because you have to return back and I know I had a lot of tour members who said you know we needed to change a job and move to the other state across to the east coast and I'm like, no, not nothing like that would happen because we stick where the family is. Because and even you live if we in the get, same house as your parents, yes, don't you? Yeah, and that's a very common thing. And right now when I'm here, well, my husband is here as well. And who's taking care of my babies? It's my mom and dad. And it's great because babysitter is right there in the house. And it's not considered weird that you live with your parents. It's just considered smart because you kind of split the cost into two with life getting more and more expensive everywhere. And I've, I've had the joy of visiting you in Slovenia, and you've remodeled the upstairs of your yes. parents' house, yeah. and your parents still live downstairs. Yes. And you have a wonderful um, little uh, bit of folk wisdom. What is mm-hmm. it about? It's, it's good oh. to visit. <laughs> well, folk wisdom is that a mother-in-law should always live as far that she cannot come in slippers into your house. <laughs> <laughs> so, <laughs> so you live in the same building, but your mother-in-law has to put on her shoes and walk well, around. It's, it's and, my mom, so it's actually okay, Sasha's mother. mother-in-law. Right. But she, because we have a separate entrance, and she really needs to remove her slippers and put on the shoes if she wants to come visit. And that's far enough. And I think that could be yeah. a universal bit of wisdom, not, yeah. just, not just Slovenian wisdom. Barry, any thoughts on parenting compared uh, to American Ireland? Yeah, when we were, I suppose when we were brought up in Ireland, we were taught children should be seen but not heard. On the other side of the coin, I see American kids as being confident, wanting to show their talents, be it singing a song or reciting something. I've seen that. And uh, they grow up uh, knowing the value of a firm handshake and introducing themselves. It's really impressive, you know, because some Irish people, they know each other all their lives. They've never shaken hands. We, we shake hands at a funeral or something like this. So you, you know? can see how a young American would be raised to have a good eye contact mm-hmm. and a firm handshake. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, I see Pleasure that. to meet you, Mr. Jones. Yeah, and they'll introduce, their, yeah, introduce themselves, and I see that as pretty good and direct, you know. And I, I think uh, it's a good thing, you know, that children and teenagers, young adults, get out there, experience the world, live, and, you know, don't be holding back and kind of be too shy, maybe... Mm-hmm. So I think it's a really good thing. All right. James, thanks so much. Okay. Thanks, okay. James. Thank you. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Okay, bye now. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking about European impressions of America. And we're joined by Francesca Caruso from Italy, Tina Hiti from Slovenia, and Barry Maloney from Ireland. So when we travel, it's just so much fun to find new foods. 
I'm wondering, when Europeans come to America, have you found new foods? What strikes you as interesting? Breakfast. <laughs> breakfast? Absolutely. Compared to Rome, huh? Um, the Italians don't understand breakfast. It's not a meal. <laughs> <laughs> it's a cappuccino, a cardboard-tasting cookie, and off you go. <laughs> or a really dry croissant. So when I come here, I can indulge with pancakes and French toast and all sorts of marvelous things, and I always look forward to that when I come here. So the, the Romans would enjoy the American breakfast. On the other hand, uh, Ireland has a pretty healthy breakfast. So that's what, what do you enjoy when you come to America from a cuisine uh, experience point of view? Just in our hotel, we have this kind of waffle-making machine. That's a great novelty <laughs> for me, you know. I, we have waffles as a dessert, you know, after dinner maybe. And it's a small differences. Like this morning, I was picking up this thing. I said, written on it was 2% milk. What's 2% milk? I'd never heard of it <laughs> yeah. before. You know, I'd ask, I'd ask an American who was in the hotel with me, and he explained that. So 2% milk was a bit of a mind-bender. Tina. And for me, going into a supermarket, same thing with the milk. I never know. I'm lost because we have two kinds and that's it. And we've got so, like six or eight kinds. Yes, and you're always standing there and what's the difference? So, and having potatoes for breakfast is kind of my kind of thing. I don't know. Hash browns, that's a lunch yeah. thing, not the breakfast. All right. And eating ketchup for breakfast. That's yeah. true. We like ketchup for breakfast. Yeah. That would not happen. No, in, no, in no, 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 no. Another new one is happy hour. You know, oh, I yeah, never, yeah. I never heard a happy hour until I came to Seattle. <laughs> is it happy? And it's always very happy. Yeah. <laughs> but, it's, but it's great how you, you gotta be happy. It's yeah. great how you mix food and drink together. You know, yeah. we tend to separate them. When you have your dinner, you go drinking after. Ah, yes. And happy hour is a great mix. Same with us. Yeah, in Slovenia, same thing. Now, in, in Rome... Well, it's catching on, the happy hour. The happy hour is catching on in Rome. <laughs> but in Rome, I, I was impressed by how after dinner is like a chemistry class. You've got all these different kinds of alcohol in different kinds of nice glasses. And you look yeah. at the table when you're all done, and there was a whole dimension of the meal, which mm -hmm. was fancy drinks, after you're done eating. Yes, yeah. digestive, yes. Digestive, yeah. And so there's, there's those kind of differences that are quite nice. How about TV? I don't know quite how a European would see American TV. It's a lot of selling channels on it. They sell something on television, and I have always problems because there's so many channels, and so I usually never turn on television. So the, the when I'm here, the aggressive commercialism yeah. turns you off as a yeah. Slovenian TV viewer. What do yeah. you like to watch in Slovenia? Travel shows. Good for you. Yeah. Yeah. Really, a lot of travel shows. Francesca. Well, at present, I think there's very little that's positive about Italian television, especially with some of mm -hmm. the private channels and the way they represent women has been I got to ask you about this, because Italy TV to me is just bimbos. <laughs> well, yeah. <laughs> you know, I mean, it's just really buxom, mindless blondes doing degrading things mm -hmm. to the delight of Italian men. Absolutely. And that's what instead women who, you know, have a brain and work and have to go out every day, that's what you have to contend with, with that image. And then and so, for years you had a, a politician that was sort of the, epitomized all that with Berlusconi. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> He's gone for the moment. <laughs> for the moment. <laughs> for the moment. One, He'll always come one, back. One good we thing know. about uh, American TV is the chat show, you know, because you're really good at answering questions, you know. Really? Ask, ask an American a question and they will answer that question, you know. They say ask an Irishman a question and he'll, he'll answer you with a question. How so? Well, the funny joke about that is an American came to Ireland and he said, is it true that um, Irish people always answer a question with a question? And the Irish guy said, who told you that? <laughs> <laughs> That's very Irish, isn't it? Yeah, there you go. You know, and for me as a researcher, I'm going over there and I'm trying to get information out of somebody. I'm working on my guidebook. I've got, you know, five minutes here. Just true. tell me this, tell me that, tell me true. that. And it know, is so frustrating. Yeah, and you know the reasoning behind it? Why? Because that person you've just asked the question is thinking, he's asking me this, but what does he really want to know? Ah, Okay. So safest he thing wants, is ask a question back. Ask a question and back. And you'll find out a bit more about what he really wants. I find that a lot of Americans have a preconceived notion what other people are like, and then they go there and they find out it's different. I would imagine Europeans have a preconceived notion what Americans are like, and then they come here and they actually change their point of view a little bit. Each of you tell me a little bit how your preconceived notion of America matches or didn't match your experience when you finally got here. Barry. Yeah, for me, it's really, I found American people to be very welcoming. Like, just in a couple of days, I'm meeting some people I met in Europe, Americans who are traveling in Europe, and they're taking me out to Mercer Island. I can't wait to see it, you know, and so they're inviting me into their own home. And it's amazing. I find, I find out that Americans are very well connected to Europe through their history, through their family tree. And that's what makes us, you know, feel at home together. 
So your preconceptions were matched by your experience? Well, no, my preconceptions would have been that there would have been more of a distance in okay. terms of, uh, you know, I grew up watching American TV. Mm-hmm. So I would have, that was my preconception is based on TV. Dallas was the big show. So I, I did expect um, maybe less friendly, more of a distance. So okay. I was really charmed and impressed by the friendliness and the openness of, of Americans' welcome. Yeah, and I, I have to agree with Barry with this. Um, we grew up all on American television, on American movies, and that's what you kind of expect when you come here. And sometimes, you know, when you come for the first time, you're kind of struck, oh my God, I'm here. And even now, sometimes when I watch a movie and there's something from Seattle, I'm like, oh, look, Space Needle. You're kind of excited. But when we talk about people, I must say that my biggest surprise was how friendly people here are. I always have a big problem whenever I walk down the streets and people say, hi, how are you? And they don't even know me. So <laughs> what do you reply to that? So I always try to talk with them and I'm always lost because they're all already gone when I give them my reply that I'm good, that this is a beautiful oh, place. Gone. <laughs> yeah, so I'm but always struck by that, by this, how are you? And this friendliness. And many, many times, I, I now have a lot of friends here, and I don't see them very often. And maybe some people I just met for the first time, and they are already inviting me. Like, I guided a tour for one day in Slovenia, and they always say, oh, whenever you come the next time, come over. You know, we'll have you over. You can stay over with us. We have an extra room. And I'm like, well, that's really nice, but I don't really know you because... Some of my friends haven't invited me to stay over in Slovenia, and I've known them for 20 <laughs> years. And that's, I think that's one kind of a surprising thing for me. It's a beautiful thing, I think, about American yeah. culture is that we yeah. really tend to be casual and informal and friendly Very. with people quicker and, mm-hmm. and, and more uh, readily than yeah. maybe in Europe. Francesca? As far as preconceived notions that have been corrected, I wouldn't know what to say because having been raised by an American, my mother is American, I think I was exposed to it. But I think that there is this tendency to see the Americans as being very materialistic people. And I think especially in this area, what really struck me was how much they care about social issues, about the environment, how committed Mm -hmm. they are, how interested they are in their local culture. And I I find that fascinating. And maybe that's because we live in a in an environment where we can make a difference because mm-hmm. we can have a dream and it's not a pipe dream. See how it always goes back to that. And in Europe, maybe you don't have that ability to have an impact. Yeah. Up on the sun This time tomorrow Fly, walk, or run But this time no sorrow First stop, Jackson Next stop, Shangri-La And I cannot wait to see the expression on the face of my sweet lord. We'll get one more peek at our European friends' impressions of America and how it contrasts with the old country in just a minute. Then, we'll check in with listeners for creative ways we can feel more at home overseas at 877-333-RICK. It's Travel with Rick Steves. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. I've always wondered what other people can teach me about my own country, and I'm joined by three friends from Europe who are sharing their perspectives on our country from their point of view. Francesca Caruso from Italy, Tina Hiti from Slovenia, and Barry Maloney from Ireland. Our phone number is 877-333-7425. Bradley's on the phone in Toano, Virginia. Bradley, thanks for your call. Yes, thank you very much. I lived in Germany for seven years, and I could pick out the Americans in the restaurant because you can hear them halfway across the... uh, restaurant. We Americans tend to be much louder in our conversations than the Europeans are. They're used to closer spaces, and so people tend to keep their voices lower and have a more intimate conversation. You can be sharing a large table with a number of people and yet have a a quiet, intimate conversation, but the Americans are always very obvious by the volume of their uh, speech. Uh, Bradley, I think you make a good point about Americans tend to be a little louder uh, in public than a lot of Europeans. That's my impression. I can be on a train in in, uh, Germany. There can be 40 people, and I can, if there's any conversation that is cutting above the rest, it would be likely to be the Americans. Do you guys find that at all when you're you're in Europe? Do you Mm. you notice the volume of Americans? Yeah. Yeah. No, no. Francesca. Well, Italians, you know. well, well, Italians, Italians. yeah. Well, it's all Italians yeah. are can be quite noisy too. So it depends on what country you're in, I guess. Yeah. 
But if you're in a, a Muslim country, I think Americans would be noisy. In Northern Europe, yeah. Americans mm-hmm. would be relatively noisy. In a bar in Ireland, I don't think you can hear anything. You won't hear anything. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I was uh, deployed to uh, Bosnia at one time, and an English gentleman managed all my, my wireless connectivity for the hospital where I worked at. And he made a quote to me one day. He said, uh, you know, Colonel, he said the difference between an, a European and American is a European is someone for whom 100 miles is a long way. An American is someone for whom 100 years is a long time. I think that makes a lot of sense. And that kind of goes back to the way we opened up this conversation with, uh, you know, like Francesca was saying, she can be here and she can actually be alone in nature. And then, but we come here and and we don't really have much of a sense of history. Good insight, Bradley. Thanks a lot and happy travels. Thank you very much. Francesca, buon pomeriggio. Ah, buon pomeriggio a te. Grazie. Ciao. Ciao. You know, I think that when we live in a big country, the United States, I mean, it can mess up our ability to really understand what are the norms on this planet. You live in relatively small countries. Uh, Italy is the size and population roughly of California. Uh, Slovenia, I think you're talking New Hampshire. The size of Seattle. <laughs> <laughs> and Ireland, you know, is a, a 4 million people or something like this. We've yeah. got double that in, in, a, in one big city. What are the consequences of living in a big country, and, and what can you teach us about living in a small country? I think in Slovenia, because we're really a small country, it's very hard to hide. So everybody knows about all your businesses, whatever you are doing or have been doing or whatever you haven't been doing, everybody knows it. So it's very hard to hide. And sometimes living in a bigger country, it's just the opposite way. You know, you, you can, can lose be, yourself in your own country. Yeah, and nobody would even... Care. It's true. Uh, gossip is a big thing in Ireland. Gossip mm-hmm. is a kind of a pastime. Yeah. And Irish people will gossip not just about you, but about your grandfather and your grandfather's life. And they'll know and they'll trace it through. Or they could gossip about your second cousin. And you can't yeah. avoid that in a little country like Ireland. No, everybody knows everybody. And uh, they know what they had for breakfast. And they know where they were the evening before. It's kind of... If you got home late, they wonder why. Yeah, they wonder why. Um, they, and if you wear the same clothes two consecutive days... <laughs> That's, really? Yeah. There, there's questions. There's discussion <laughs> there's at the pub tonight. Discussions. Yeah. Tina wore the same clothes <laughs> two consecutive days. <laughs> Another question for me, which is fascinating, is assimilation. In the United States, we're a land of immigrants, and many of our grandparents came from Asia or Europe or south of the border or whatever. Mm-hmm. And within two generations, you almost have nothing left of the old home country. When you come to the United States. What do you recognize or what do you know about, what are your observations about how Irish or Italians or uh, Slavic people have come into our country and uh, assimilated or not assimilated? What do you see? Well, what I've noticed about the Italians that have moved to America is how they emphasize certain features of what the Italian character is considered to be. But I think what they did do is embrace that sense of possibility. So I think it really gave them a possibility to express their creativity and their brilliant ideas. And I think that they've been very successful combining the Italian creativity with American possibility. So given the fact that America is really, from your perspective, the land of possibility, more so than staying in the old country, they take their Italian aspirations and quirks and then run with them here in this yes. more open environment. Mm-hmm. That's interesting. And I, I think for the Slavic people, you know, you can easily recognize them because they have the facial features that cannot be missed. You know, even walking down the street, you would literally know, no matter where you are, he's coming from our neck of the woods. So he's something but, of it. Yeah, you can see that. But I think the Slavic people are very big in sports. We have always been. And I think... What they've done over here is that they continued that tradition, so they didn't stop, because I think many, many of the former Slavic inhabitants that moved over here have kind of turned into sports, and they are also very hardworking people. Mm -hmm. So they usually are the ones who are quite successful in their businesses. Uh Yeah, Yeah, I see that with the the Mm -hmm. Irish. In America, of course, it's a big story, and uh, I feel a lot of pride in Irish-Americans. And a lot of Americans want to be Irish. You know, even uh, like Obama came to Ireland last year and he said he came thousands of miles to rediscover the apostrophe in his name. So he was Obama and he was welcomed and he drank the pint of Guinness just like Ronald Reagan, Bill Clinton and JFK before him. You know, So in America, you see uh, a general affinity for things Irish. There's Irish pubs all around the world. You go to Hong Kong, go to Japan, go to Singapore, Irish pubs everywhere. So there's that pride. 
But do immigrants we take tend, things that have died out in the old country and keep them alive in the new country? Yeah, yeah, I've seen how, that. How so? I, last time I was here in Seattle, I visited uh, good friends of mine, Brian and Mary, who are American, true and true. And when I came into their house, it was just like stepping back in time in Ireland. You know, they had the posters. They, it really touched me of how important their Irish visit was. It really touched me, the, the Irish music collection, the Dubliners, the Wolf Tones, you know. <laughs> everything was there in their home. And it was, you know, it was really nice to see, you know. So they had uh, Irish culture on, on sort of an oxygen tank here. Oh, yeah, yeah. Potatoes for dinner. It was like, you know. <laughs> I think that's true with a lot of cultures. Francesca? Yeah. Well, certainly I think that the, the macho image of the Italian man is much more cultivated among Italian-Americans than it is back home. That's ah. one thing I notice are these incredible meals that go on for hours and hours and hours that you find less and less of in Italy. So some Italians are embracing the cliches of Italy here. We don't have spaghetti with meatballs in Italy. <laughs> Say it ain't so. No spaghetti with meatballs in Italy. We can get it here. Yeah. Francesca Caruso from Italy, Tina Hiti from Slovenia, Barry Maloney from Ireland. Thank you very much for uh, teaching us all a little bit about what uh, America is from your perspective. Thank you. Thank you, Thank you Rick. We've got time to check in with a few of our listeners right now at 877-333-7425 to explore ways that we Americans can feel at home when we travel to Europe. Greg's on the phone in San Diego, California. Greg, thanks for your call. Oh, thanks, Rick. It's a pleasure to talk to you. Yeah. You have some thoughts on connecting with Europeans in your travels. Oh, absolutely. You know, as a high schooler, especially uh, with music, we were all over the place with the honor choir locally here in town high school groups and religious groups being sometimes the only outlet for travel to people with less means than others. And in 1989, our high school honor choir went to Tallinn in Estonia as part of an official glasnost trip. And this was just before the fall of the Soviet Union. Exactly. A year or two before that singing revolution that we've heard so much about. And being such a a culture that's where where music is such such an integrated part of their culture, it was really the most memorable time of that two-week trip, that 24 hours in Tallinn. And I think that the six-foot-two brunette that I met had a lot to do with that, but that also fed into it. Okay. I mean, it's just an incredible part this, of the... Uh, first of all, the six-foot-two brunette, who, what's going on there? <laughs> <laughs> well, I was 15, and she you was met a, uh, <laughs> somebody, uh, somebody you could sing with in Estonia. Exactly, exactly. Of course, who, um, you wanted to harmonize. It's a cultural exchange. <laughs> Absolutely. As teenagers do, we shared music with our little group of the new Depeche Mode album was out, so we listened to that. But this was a heady time when there was a a little whiff of freedom in the air, a little hope, uh, this glasnost. But Estonia was still part of the Soviet Union. And then this incredible singing revolution, the power of choral groups in Estonia to, to win their freedom from the Soviet Union. Well, because it's so much of an ingrained part of their fabric, really... And in uh, 1991, they got with that sort of Russia was on its way out. The Soviet Union uh, was on its way out, and, and Russia particularly was, was done with it. And so they dealt with people the way that they knew how to. They didn't know how to, to fight people. They didn't know how to hurt. They knew how to sing. And so they did in such a way that not a drop of blood was shed in this revolution where other republics um, in the former Soviet Union are still fighting. This singing revolution, for people who aren't versed in this, I would have never known about it had I not traveled in Estonia. There's a great documentary movie called The Singing Revolution that you can look at online, and it's just amazing to think that a third of all Estonians, as far as I know, got together at one time to sing forbidden patriotic hymns just to show their solidarity in winning their freedom from the Soviet Union. Exactly. Today, you have this mighty little nation. A million people on this planet speak Estonian, and they've won their freedom, and they did it not with guns, but with singing. And it was such an incredible thing to be a part of. And when our choirs shared music back and forth, we would do some spirituals, and then they sang some songs of their own, and they were pop tunes, some of them, and they had some other things. But the difference was that when we sang, there were these 16 people that in four-part harmony we did our things. When they sang, it was 12-part harmony, and the entire school sang along with the group. (laughs) And those were the same songs that we then heard on the news feeds that were coming across on CBS and NBC and ABC as this thing was unfolding, that we had heard these songs before, and we could not necessarily sing along, but whistle the tunes that we had heard just a few years before. 
And that, that six-foot-two brunette was one of that younger generation that helped tear down the Soviet Union in that little gentle way in Estonia and establish freedom for that beautiful country. Exactly. And, you know, we are still good friends. Our families get together as often as you can. But, a six-foot-two um, brunette? Exactly. Wonderful. <laughs> and our friends, <laughs> our, our children are now friends on Facebook. It's oh, just an incredible thing, and we still share music back and forth. Great, and it's, great story. It's great. a wonderful gift. Thank you very much. That's quite an inspiration. Pleasure. Thanks so much. Okay, bye now. Bye. Cynthia's on the line from Monterey, California. Cynthia, thanks for your call. Yeah, hi, Rick. Nice to talk to you. Thank you. I'm trying to find out a little more information regarding a southern Italy region of Calabria and Basilicata. I uh, have been to Italy a couple times, and, of course, there's a lot of information always out there in all the books and travel shows and all the publicity for all the main tourist sites in Rome and Venice and Tuscany and Florence and all that. But um, I'd like to plan a trip with my family at some point to these more southern regions where my husband's grandparents came from. And so I'd like to know what you know about that. Well, you know... I know very little about Basilica and Calabria. These are the two southernmost provinces of Italy before we uh, leave the boot and go to the football down there to Sicily. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the reality is uh, it's a poor part of Italy, and there's a lot of Americans from this part of Italy because it was so poor that they decided to leave the country and go to the New World for opportunity. Right. So the sort of funny irony is that the Americans with the Italian roots often have roots in the least interesting, most rustic and poor parts of Italy. Mm-hmm. And this is an area that suffered a lot from brutal colonial history and a lot of corruption and banditry and so on. They never had enough money to build great art wonders and wonderful architecture and so on that you see in cultural centers further to the north. Now, I know I'll get letters and emails from people who <laughs> just love Basilicata or love Calabria, but I'll tell you, frankly, if you got less than a month in Italy, I wouldn't go there unless you've got relatives. Mm-hmm. If you've got relatives, it can be a rich experience, and it's a blessing that there are no tourists there. Yeah. The, the price will be literally half of what you'd spend for a wonderful meal in Florence or Rome, uh-huh. and you will find people that see you not as part of the economy, but as a guest. So you've got that intimate angle on the culture. But if you're looking for famous sites, you're not going to find any there. Well, I'm not so much thinking that there's going to be museums or anything right. like that, but um, I was just kind of wondering what the ambiance was with the people and you know the food and, and you know the other kinds of things that yeah. make travel fun. Well, there is a, there is a town called Matera there. Mm-hmm down there, which is just gorgeous, and I believe that's famous for Mel Gibson's uh, The Passion. Uh, The scenes from that came out of Matera, and it's just a time warp kind of place, Matera. That's the major tourist attraction as such, but if you're looking for uh, fun as a traveler in a place with very little formal tourism, what you need to do is find ways to connect with the culture, not by going to museums and, and great buildings, but by understanding the cuisine and by understanding the traditions and by making friends with people or connecting with long-lost relatives. You know, So that's your challenge is to bone up on the culture and know what you want to eat and, and know what you want to experience that way. And then the sky's the limit. Right. Would you say that the people, and you know, I know it's a generalization, but um, would be necessarily more friendly or less friendly? I know that you would be warmly welcomed because there's just not that many tourists. Tourists are annoying if you live in Florence. Mm -hmm. But if you live in Potenza, a tourist is an oddity. Okay. You see? So take advantage of that. You know, when you go into a cafe, talk to people. When you go into a restaurant and it's full, ask somebody if you can sit at their table. Uh, Have your phrase book with you because a lot of people um, might not likely speak English. And make sure you know where all your relatives live. Cynthia, thanks for your call. Good luck on that. Bye now. Bye-bye. Randy in San Jose, California. Thanks for calling. Hi, Rick. Uh, I wanted to ask you about soccer in England. Have you ever gone to a match? Would you recommend it? Um, I've been to a couple, and I was just wondering what your thoughts were about that. You know, I've been to soccer matches on the continent in Italy, and uh, I know that uh, they're very popular all over Europe. And I've been to hurling matches in Ireland. Every time I go to a stadium in Europe filled with sports fans, especially if it's a game I don't normally go to otherwise, it's always a fun experience. What was your experience like in England? I went to Old Trafford in Manchester. It was just fabulous. Um, I would highly recommend it to anybody Everybody said, well, it's going to be violent. There's a lot of drunks there. It wasn't any more than 
any more drunks than you would see at a typical mm. NFL game. And I'm planning this year coming up to go to London to see a series of matches as well. And uh, I would really, really strongly recommend it. I, I don't know how a person could go to Europe and not get caught up in the soccer yeah. <laughs> soccer mania that exists there. It is very spirited, isn't it? They'd be packed with 50,000 people in a stadium singing ole, 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 ole. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, they, um, I went to see a match at the San Siro in Milan. It was just crazy with the people that would come in with the, they have the flags with their team on it. They come in with road flares. I mean, they're just absolutely crazy, but they're very respectful too. They're and, not, you know, screaming obscenities. They're just very, very passionate for their team. So you didn't find the hooliganism was a physical danger to the tourist that would venture into that scene? No, no. In fact, when I went to Manchester, there was a, an English fellow there and his wife, and I, I understand soccer, but, you know, I still don't understand all the rules. And he would say, oh, yeah, you know, this is an offside rule, and he would tell me, uh, you know, about different players and how things worked and stuff. And I found every time I've gone to a stadium, Randy, that outside there's these little stands where you can buy the scarves and the flags and the hats, and, and you should choose which team you want to support and buy that color, and then remember who you're rooting for, because if you're wearing the wrong color and yeah. choosing for the wrong team, it might be embarrassing. It's really neat that you'll see them, all the fans, a lot of them wear the jersey, but their thing is the scarf. They're affordable, and they're easy to travel with, and it's just a great memory, and then when you're in the stadium, you feel like you're caught up in the energy, because you've got that the scarf with the correct colors on it, and you're with 50,000 local people, and I swear there's not a tourist in the whole crowd. It's just purely a local event, and that in itself is, is quite a thrill for a traveler. Oh, um, you know, especially for England, is the pub culture. And most of them will have some pubs around there, and they'll tell you, oh, this is a good one to meet people. I've never had any problems at any of them. Most of the time, most people buy you a drink. They'll ask you about America. They'll, they'll make comments about American soccer and our lack of success in it. But I'm going to go back. i counting the days. Randy, that's a great insight. Thank you so much. Happy travels. Thanks, Rick. Travel with Rick Steves comes to you from Europe through the back door in Edmonds, Washington. It's produced by Tim Tatton with Sarah McCormick. Our email address is radio at ricksteves.com. And we'll see you again next week with more Travel with Rick Steves. Ciao. Rick Steves has spent a third of his adult life in Europe researching and writing guidebooks. His classic, Europe Through the Back Door, teaches the skills of smart travel. And his country, city, and snapshot guides cover what to see, where to eat, and where to sleep for every corner of Europe. To learn more about Rick's books, visit the Travel Store at ricksteves.com.